will ask that you would now turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, verse 1 to 11 for our session. And as you do so, Philippians 3, verse 1 to 11, permit me to explain uh, what it is that my assignment is and how I will attempt to go about fulfilling it. The topic assigned to me is that of the battle for a family legacy, the battle for a family legacy and the family legacy being what heads of households entrust to those coming after them. It is basically the question, what is it that as the head of a household, after you have departed, you want your family to be known for? Or to phrase it a little differently, perhaps you have not departed. The Lord has given you more life to live on the earth. But what has happened instead is that your children or your dependents under your care are growing and they will soon leave your nest and go out into the world. The question is, as you prepare yourself for their departure and as you prepare them for their departure, what is your highest ambition for them? What is it that you hope for for them so much that the thought of them failing to attain it keeps you up late at night, agonizing in prayer, strategizing for ways that you may use to make sure that that never happens? What family legacy are you striving to leave behind? Now, I am not under any illusions that I am a father. I, I am not a father. And so I will not try to pretend as if I am a father, um, put myself in the shoes of a father and then ask the question, what kind of legacy would I want to leave behind for my children and how do I go about battling for it? I, I, I do not want this to be inauthentic. And so I, I will steer clear from that path. Uh, I am not a father, but I am a son. I am... Uh, a son to a biological father and I, I am a son to many spiritual fathers all of whom have shaped me and influenced me and I am grateful from for, for all of them I am a son and it is it is from that perspective that that I want to speak and it will not be a rebuke the, the Bible forbids it do not rebuke an older man but the end of that verse says but exhort him as you would a father appeal to him as you would a father and so that is what I hope this will be a respectful appeal as a son on behalf of many sons to our many fathers biological and spiritual let me share with you right off the bat what what our appeal as sons is and and our appeal can actually be illustrated Surprisingly, and to you allow me to explain what I mean, by the prosperity gospel and asking the question, what is the heart of the issue with regards to the prosperity gospel? Where do those who propagate the prosperity gospel get it wrong? The usual answer to that question is this, the, the heart of the prosperity gospel the problem with the prosperity gospel is that it adheres to an over-realized eschatology. Now, here's what I, what I mean by that. Um, 
there are there are blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus and we thank God for them. Ephesians 1 verse 3 says that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's true and we thank God for that. But we must also recognize that there are some blessings that we enjoy whilst we are here on earth and there are other blessings that we will only fully enjoy their fullest expression at the end of the age in glory and so we cannot enjoy all of the things that are ours here on, on earth that's a proper eschatology but an overrealized eschatology is that attempt to reach into the blessings that we can only begin to enjoy in the age to come and bring it to today and so the problem with the prosperity gospel is that it has an, an over-realized eschatology. It reaches into and attempts to bring today what properly belongs to the age to come. But the more that I have thought about this, the more that I have become convinced that the problem with the prosperity gospel is not so much that it offers too much to us. The problem with the prosperity gospel is that it offers us too little. The problem with the prosperity gospel is not so much that it makes far too much of Christ and what he achieved for us on our behalf on the cross. The problem is that it makes too little of his accomplishments. Because what is health and wealth and prosperity in comparison to peace with God in justification, to having God as our Father in adoption, to having our very characters molded and shaped and changed into the image of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. No, the problem is not that it offers too little, too much. The problem is that it offers too little. And that is what our appeal is. Our concern is not so much that our fathers have goals which are too high, too unattainable, too ambitious. Our problem is that they are not ambitious enough. We need more. And we need you to desire more for us than just earthly, academic, and material success. The bar is not too high. It is, in fact, too low. And I hope that we, as we look at this passage of scripture, um, that you would see what it is as sons that we desire for you to desire for us the most. And that's an important qualifier because we are not saying that you should not desire our academic success, um, that you should not push us to attain and reach the very top of our professions. By all means, do so. But what we are saying is that there is an ambition for something greater than all of that which we desire for you to have for us. And I hope you can see it here in our text. So let's read it and then we'll pray and ask for God's blessings. Philippians 1, 3 verse 1 to verse 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. 
For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. For if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish rubbish in order that i may gain christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in christ the righteousness from god that depends on faith that i may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible i may attain the resurrection from the dead it's pray together briefly our heavenly father we pray that you would set our gaze high toward your son that by your holy spirit you might lift him up in our sight that in being lifted up he will draw us to himself we ask for your special blessing yet again to attend to this the ministry of your word in jesus name amen two observations that I want to make here from verse 1. The first is when when he says finally, he does not mean that he is concluding. Clearly not, because he, he goes on to say uh, quite a lot of things. And he is not also being a, a Reformed Baptist preacher, so to speak, who says finally, but then goes on to make um, additional points. Um, the word finally we don't appreciate this in the English but in the original actually means as for the rest it's as if he is summarizing everything that he is going to say thereafter and we know that what he goes on to summarize the way he goes about to summarize is is in fact the main message behind our passage of scripture and the entirety of the letter to the Philippians and and it is this Finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. It's a remarkable way of summarizing everything that he is going to say um, thereafter, especially when we understand the context. Those of us who are familiar with the book of Philippians know that Paul did not write this on some exotic island somewhere on the Mediterranean. He wrote this in chains. He, he wrote this in, in prison. Um, and yet he is overflowing with joy, joy that he personally has and joy that he desires the Philippians to have in his exhortation for them to rejoice with in the Lord. How could it possibly be? The answer is in fact the message of, of our text and it is this. For Paul, the one who has absolutely everything, but does not have Christ, has absolutely nothing. And the one who has absolutely nothing except Christ has absolutely everything. And brethren, 
I'll, I'll come to this towards the end, but the reason why when, when trials come and things are taken away from us, the, the reason why we, 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 we get into deep depression is, is because we, 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 we have not seen what Paul has seen. We, we have not grasped this with our hearts. Christ is not exceedingly precious to us. Exceedingly precious. But not Paul. He has nothing. He is in chains. He is in prison. But he has Christ. And for him, that means he has everything. And so he rejoices. And he exhorts them to rejoice. But the second thing I want you to notice uh, besides... Um, He's him saying, finally, my brothers rejoice in the Lord, is, is, is what he says about him being repetitive. Repetitive. you notice what he says. Finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. What same things is he, is he talking about? They're usually two, two suggestions. Um, it is either he means his exhortation for them to rejoice, or it could mean his his exhortations and warnings regarding false teachers. I, I, I don't see how it can't be both. On the one hand, this is not the first time that he has exhorted them to, to rejoice. He, he does it earlier in verse 18 of chapter 2, verse 18 of chapter 2, Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. He does it again in verse 28 of that same chapter. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So it is not beyond the realms of logic and reason that it is the exhortation to rejoice that he is speaking of when he says it is not tedious for me to repeat the same things. But there is also something to be said about the warnings that he gives of, of false teachers. He first exhorts them regarding false teachers earlier in chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of your destruction, etc., etc. And then when he comes to um, chapter 3, verse 2, in the second verse, he warns them of these very opponents, these very false teachers. And you will notice that he repeats this warning three times over. Verse 2, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, look out, look out. Look out. And this, this repetition, he says, is not troublesome to him. And it should not be troublesome to you either. It is for your benefit that I emphasize this. Because if I do not emphasize this, you will not grasp the seriousness of the heresy of these false teachers and the danger that they may pose. And if you do not 
grasp and appreciate the danger that they may pose you will put your guard down and if you put your guard down they will infiltrate your ranks and cause havoc so it is not troublesome for me to be this repetitive it is a safeguard for you so look out look out look out he doesn't mince his words in in describing these these false teachers you notice that um, and it's as if he is saying if if repetition won't wake you up to the seriousness of the, the potential situation if you allow them to bring in their destructive heresies then my description of them most certainly will he calls them dogs look out for the dogs he calls them evildoers look out for those who mutilate the flesh um, look out for the evildoers, pardon me. And he calls them mutilators of the flesh. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. These are, are three different descriptions which describe the same reality. And that reality is the fact that these are individuals who place confidence in the flesh. Confidence in the flesh and in the performance of outward deeds in order to be right with God. Let's quickly look at each of these descriptions in turn. In the first place, he calls them dogs. And if you are a Jew listening to this, you would be, you would be insulted by the irony. And in fact, the irony is, is intended. Uh, dog was not a term that was associated with Jews. Dog was a term that Jews used for Gentiles. You remember uh, Jesus moving in the Gospels in the region of Sire and Sidon and arriving into that village and the gentle woman coming up to him and asking him for help asking him uh, asking that he assists her and Jesus turning to her in what appears to be a very rude uh, response he says to her it is not good to give what belongs to the children to get what belongs to the children and to give them over to dogs interestingly she doesn't object to the title she says, in effect, true, but even dogs can lick, pick up the breadcrumbs which fall from the table. And the point is, salvation is from the Jews, and salvation comes first and foremost to, to the Jews. But surely, as a Gentile, I can pick up some of the residue of the glory and the mercy and the grace which are given to the Jews. And yet, when we come to our text, that idea is turned on its head. It is not the Gentiles who have trusted in Christ, justified by faith alone, who are the dogs. No, they are the true Israelites. They are the true offspring of Abraham. It is those who reject the promises of Abraham, realized in the person of Christ, who are the outcasts, who are the dogs. Look out for the dogs. He calls them evildoers as well. Look out for the evildoers. You, you missed this in the English, but in the original language, that, that word doers is actually workers or laborers. Uh, people who spend the whole day laboring and sweating in order to gain a wage. And what these are laboring for is for the Philippians to abandon their path on justification by faith and to begin to, begin to pursue rightness with God through some other 
means. They might not know it, but what these workers are striving for is actually hell. Because the way of confidence in the flesh is the way to hell. And in laboring to make sure that the Philippians abandon the course that they are on and begin to have confidence in the flesh, they are actually laboring to lead them to hell. That is an evil. And so he calls them, he calls them evil doers. Look out for them. And then he calls them mutilators of the flesh, those who mutilate the flesh. And this is a reference to circumcision, which he, he, he rightly notes in verse 3 when he says, For we are the circumcision, building up from the last thought in the end of verse, in the end of verse 2. So this is a reference to, to circumcision. But he doesn't call it circumcision. Instead, he seems to liken their, their approach to circumcision to uh, something that is akin to the, the prophets of Baal in First in Kings, uh, gashing their bodies, cutting them into pieces in hopes that it will arouse their God from its slumber. And he is saying that is precisely what they do. Their circumcision counts for nothing. It is as good as mutilation. So look out for them. These are your opponents. Now, now, now here's the point. And here's why they are so dangerous. The problem with these opponents is that they place confidence in something that will land them in hell. And they seek to bring people into sharing such a confidence. But in so doing, what you will be sharing in is their experience of, of hell. Their experience of, of hell. So look out for them. Look out for them. Look out for them. But he is not content to just leave it at a warning, is he? He, he wants to confront their heresy and to destroy it so that any doubt whatsoever that may have been lingering in the minds of the Philippians, you know, what if they do have a point? What if the flesh does count for something? All of that must be done away with. So he confronts it and he defeats it. And he does it by basically saying, believe me when I say, believe me when I say that there is no profit in following after the way of the flesh. No profit at all. Because if there was anyone who knows all about the flesh, it is me. I am qualified to speak into this issue. I have explored everything the flesh has to offer. I have attained the highest possible accolades possible with regards to the flesh. I have reached the very apex of my profession and when I have gotten there, I have found that there is nothing. There is nothing. There is nothing. Listen to what he says in, in verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If there is anybody who should have confidence in the flesh, it should be me. In fact, 
I have even more reason to be confident in the flesh because with regards to human achievement, I have reached the very top of my profession. I have won all the accolades and therefore, if human achievement counts for something, I would know. And then he lays out these credentials. He lays out his CV, so to speak, his, his accolades, his achievements. From verse 4 onwards, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, um, I, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. In other words, if there was any spiritual good to be found in Israel through the flesh, through human accomplishments, it would be found in me. When it comes to human achievement, when it comes to the flesh and my qualifications where the flesh is concerned, I made it. And having reached the very top of my profession, I can tell you what I found. I found nothing. I found nothing. Why? Because the one who has everything but does not have Christ has nothing. And when compared to Christ, all of this that I have achieved is nothing. Absolutely nothing. Rubbish. Dung, he says, according to the original. Listen to what he says there in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Verse 8, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Having reached the summit and found nothing, I have been pointed to something. And it is so glorious that not only does what I have achieved not stand up to comparison to what I have found in Christ, it is actually rubbish compared to Christ. And so rejecting a pursuit of Christ in favor of pursuing human achievement is like rejecting life in a mansion in favor of pursuing a swim in a pool of dung or a septic tank or a sewer, having seen Christ and having looked again at what I have achieved. It's a non-starter. There is no comparison there. And so I can suffer the loss of all things. And that's what he says there at the end of verse 8, doesn't he? Uh, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Let them take everything away. I don't care. It matters little to me. I am willing to lay aside my credentials, never to take them up again. I am willing to lose father and to lose mother. I am willing to be imprisoned as I am, and I am willing to lose my very life. I am willing to lose absolutely everything because I have found everything in Christ. I have nothing, but I know Christ. 
and therefore I have everything. And perhaps this is the problem. Perhaps the problem is we don't see knowing Christ as of, as he says in the text, as of, as of surpassing worth, surpassing worth. We don't see it as, as surpassing worth. We, we, we have not looked at the sun. And so when we see candles, candles, we are amazed. Absolutely amazed. Well, no wonder you are amazed. You have never been outside. You have never looked at the sun. You go outside and, and you look at the blazing heat of the noonday sun and you come and tell me how great candles are. You can't. And that's the problem. That's the problem. And the solution is that we need to take a fresh look at the sun. We need to take a fresh look at Christ. As the hymn writer says, we need to turn our eyes upon Jesus and, and look full into his wonderful face. And as we do that, we will see the things of the earth grow strangely dim, strangely dim in the eyes, uh, in, the, in the light of his glory and, and his grace. How can you gaze into this, into the face of Christ? And then turn and make it your number one ambition in life for your children to get six points or to go and study abroad or to make it to the school of natural science to graduate with honors to work at the finest of institutions to end up as director of public prosecutions or as a cabinet minister or as the chief executive officer of some prestigious institution. And then when we become all of those things, and then what? No, when you, when you spend time looking at the sun, you are not as amazed at the sight of candles. When you, when you, when you spend time looking in the face of Christ and you come out and you come to us your sons you will want us to see what you have seen you've seen something greater you found something more precious and you will make it your ambition that we pursue the same thing so that we can see what you have seen and that's the legacy that we desire for you to desire to live with us. A few questions for you from sons to, to our fathers, respectfully. When you pray for us, what do you pray for? Do you pray that we count as loss everything we have? and everything that we will ever gain for the sake of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as our Lord? Do you pray that we would suffer the loss of all things, even our jobs, even our lives, if that's what it meant to gain Christ? Is this your ambition for us?
Is this your vision for us? Is this your legacy for us? Christ, knowing Christ at whatever cost? Let me, let me put it a different way. When last did you look at the desperate need that exists for men to get into the missions field? Been heartbroken by it and then gone in private in, in your study or wherever the case might be. Put your face to the ground, wept and prayed, Lord, raise up men for the missions field. And if it is your will, let my son be one of them. I know that he will suffer loss. But what is that in comparison to Christ and serving Christ and pressing hard after him? and living and spending and being spent for his kingdom. Do you pray like that for us? Or is it just, Lord, help him pass his exams, grant him acceptance at that university, help him clear his courses, help him excel at his workplace? Candles, candles, because the sun is unseen. It's unseen. This is the legacy we desire for you to leave behind for, for us. That, that at the end of your life, when you, when you look at us, you will see lawyers. I hope you will see lawyers and, and doctors and entrepreneurs and electricians and whatever the case might be uh, gathered around your deathbed. You will see all of them with all of their accomplishments but none of that is what will warm your heart it will be the knowledge that even though they have gained all of these things and i have pushed them to gain all of these things all of these things are nothing if they don't have christ and they have christ therefore they have absolutely everything but the opposite is true because if you get to your deathbed and all you have around your deathbed are lawyers because that is all that you pushed them to presidents and ministers and chief executive officers and absolutely nothing else you will weep because you know that even though they have gained absolutely everything, they have absolutely nothing because they don't have Christ. What is our appeal to you as sons? If your ambitions for us is mainly for us to reach the very pinnacle of our academic and professional lives, your ambitions for us are much too low. They are much too low. We need you to desire Christ for us, even if pursuing him will cost us everything. But that can only happen if you yourselves have seen him and are soaking yourselves in his brilliance and his glory. And you know what? The rest will take care of itself. Christ will be why we study late 
at night in order to pass our exams. Christ will be why we endeavor to work with excellence in our places of work. He will become the controlling principle of our lives. But we need you to desire for us this desire, a desire for Christ more than anything and everything else. Because you know that even if we have nothing at the end of the day, if we have Christ, we have everything. This is the legacy that we desire for you to leave to us. And this is our appeal. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word and for the example of Paul. Help us to um, catch even the, the slightest of glimpses of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even that will be enough to stir something of a desire um, in us for more of him. And when we look at him, let us desire to look some more. That in gazing into his face, we will notice the things of the world grow, grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. This is the legacy that we desire have left behind. A line of men who press in hard after the Lord Jesus Christ and suffer the loss of all things so that they may have Christ and being found in him, not having a righteousness of their own which depends on the law, but a righteousness which is by faith and to know him and to share in his sufferings that by any means possible we might attain to the resurrection of the grave from the grave. Grant this for us because we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.